Hello, everyone, and welcome to our sixth episode of Kidbrook's Insights podcast, covering the most prominent trends and the latest technological advancements in the rapidly transforming wealth management industry. I'm Zelia Gindulina, Head of Business Development, and I'm joined by Natalie Burke, our marketing expert. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to be examining the most interesting topics in the industry at the moment. Yeah, Zalia, there were several themes that dominated the agenda this last quarter. Um, Despite volatile markets, rising interest rates and a slowing economy, Fidelity Institutional um, reported wealth management mergers and acquisitions set a record in the first half of 22 with a whopping 119 deals. So the wealth wealth management industry doesn't seem to be slowing down. Um, But today, the first topic which is of interest is the enforcement of the sanctions on Russia as a result of the invasion in Ukraine. Yeah, that's an interesting topic. Um, Just to remind you all, uh, the US, UK and the European Union responded with unprecedented sanctions to this terrible uh, invasion, as well as the export controls against the Russian government and the Russian banks. Uh, operation companies and uh, a few individuals. Uh, This is actually a very interesting topic because it actually impacted quite a lot of investors around the world. And um, this uh, July, I've been at the Goodacres Wealth Management Forum where Michael Ruck from KL and Gates was speaking. And he delivered a very interesting keynote about uh, the enforcement of sanctions that wasn't going as efficiently as everybody thought it should, but uh, it was catching up uh, later that I checked it out. Um, Many international investors are caught in between uh, rock and hard place by the sanctions and the Russia's own economic response, which is really restrictive. And therefore, it is uh, definitely important that the investors take uh, all prudent steps to preserve the information about their investments in Russia uh, to consider the potential of investment treaty um, arbitration to provide a future remedy in the event of um, the covered uh, investment is lost or devalued because of the Russian economic measures. We will put all the links to the reports by KLN Gates uh, in the description of this podcast. But definitely, this is, uh, of course, a part of a larger discussion within the ESG, which is uh, environmental, social and governance. And uh, yeah, it is uh, definitely something that is coming up when we are dealing with investments. And uh, this space is really, really eventful. Um, So what's new uh, in this space, Natalie? 
Yeah, so we're hearing a lot about ESG um, enforcement of regulations again, aren't we? So um, I guess there's always going to be an initiative to try to come up with uh, the standards to co- and combat greenwashing, which isn't new either. So there's the SASB, which is Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. And this was founded in uh, 2011. And its mission is to establish industry-specific disclosure standards across ESG topics that facilitate communication between companies and investors about financially uh, material decision-useful information. And this information should be relevant, reliable and comparable across companies on a global basis. And then there's also the GRI, Um, which is the Global Reporting Initiative that was created to enable any organisation to understand and report on their impacts on the economy, um, environment and people in a comparable and credible way, therefore increasing transparency on their contribution to um, sustainable development. And both of these have been active for over a decade now. So it looks like the industry needs to brace itself um, from what we've been saying for more rigorous Um, enforcement of regulations. So the question is, what's new in the reporting and how can it be trusted? You know, what challenges uh, there are to overcome both for the regulators and the wealth managers? Um, There's regulatory efforts to clamp down on greenwashing already um, in, in, and it's already in progress in Europe. So we've got SFD um, which is Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, which was introduced in March 21. And this outlines um, disclosure requirements for funds and other financial products claiming to have sustainability-related characteristics and objectives. So regulators are now going to be scrutinising asset management, uh, asset managers, um, sustainable investment disclosures, and UK asset managers are now forced to publish um, environmental impact data under a new sustainability disclosure requirements regime. So these green investing apps are encouraging investors to put their capital to work and save the planet. And with the pandemic um, further strengthening the mindset that managing social and environmental challenges is, is essential, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And we see that um, a lot more companies trying to uh, capitalize on this ESG focus. And uh, it's no surprise that the regulators want to set the expectations uh, on uh, um, their performance in order to ensure their market credibility. Exactly. So now ESG statements and products have to be backed by substance. They have to be backed by action and more crucially data, which seems obvious if they if they really need or want to be trusted. So let's leave ESG there for now. There's lots of info there to digest. And again, we'll put links um, in the sources. Um, Another very interesting trend that we've noticed um, and that's having lots of mentions is regards to human-centred designs going mainstream. Yes, and I think that uh, this uh, particular trend is a part of a larger conversation that we have for almost every quarterly trends review, and it has to deal with hybrid versus digital. Uh, So it seems like that um, 
the combination of digital and uh, physical uh, ways of doing business in wealth management seems to be the industry-wide consensus. But, uh, of course, uh, within the more high net worth uh, individual-oriented spaces of the wealth management, uh, uh, the traditional uh, or physical uh, way of doing business uh, remains to be uh, something that uh, is considered uh, a best practice because you need to maintain the relationship with your customers. However, I think that digital within that space could also be extremely helpful. And we actually have our CEO, uh, Frederick Davius, um, attending a conference in Zurich to talk about it next week. Um, yeah, so... Um, Digital tools uh, and financial analytics in particular could be uh, wonderful to improve engagement levels and get rid of uh, the Excel sheets uh, for um, private bankers and uh, the IFAs who are working with uh, uh, their clients face to face. And it can also be a platform to build more self-service channels uh, to um, develop further on uh, if, for instance, one would want to facilitate wealth transfer in a few years. And of course, uh, within that sort of uh, space, uh, within the self-service channel, there is a lot of things to explore. Um, this is, of course, the examples from uh, the retail space, but our customer Scandia managed to achieve 50% more advice for the same cost within the self-service channels. They uh, saw that there were quite a lot of interesting trends uh, unraveling, uh, for instance, uh, the generational problem that I already touched upon. Um, uh, the surprising thing about uh, Scandi's experience was that actually um, uh, the tool was more popular among the older generation. <laughs> so uh, this notion that, uh, you know, like the digital channels could only be appreciated by millennials or Zoomers seems to not be true. There are also a lot of opportunities for co-creation and we saw Scandia already developing uh, a number of uh, um, new uh, digital services based on the feedback of their customers. Um, and there also been some um, evidence for digital activations through this digital channel. So the customer tended to learn about the company digitally and then approaching uh, the firm through more traditional channels that they would be comfortable with. But in order to make all this work, it is important to be strategic about a digital or a hybrid service that the company builds. So which factors do we see are getting more important to consider, Natalie? Yeah, I think there's a couple that we, we could consider. I mean, the first one is realism. So we obviously know the financial markets are uncertain and a good analytical toolkit can help a team of, of advisors evalu evaluate this uncertainty um, correctly. A more in-depth in anal analysis would not only focus on the average values, but carefully consider worst or best 
case scenarios. And then you've got speed. Um, technology needs to be able to learn and analyse data with suspic- uh, su- sufficient speed to meet the modern requirements for interactivity. Otherwise, it, it cannot be used in customer meetings, leading to frustration and damaging the impression of, of your business. Um, and customers want to get their their information quickly, don't they? Now, you know, the 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 habit is they don't want to be um, waiting around. They want to get their information on the fly. And then the other one is notifications. So one of the most important technical enablers for an advisor is the ability of proactive notifications to automatically notify their customers about the important milestones or action points of their wealth journey. And these intelligent notifications based on the ongoing automated analysis of their customers' financial situations lets the financial planners or RMs spend more time on building relationships with their clients rather than spending their time on exhausting Excel-based um, calculations, as we've, as we've obviously noted with one of our clients. Mm-hmm. For sure. I'd, I would also add, Natalie, that uh, flexibility is also really important yeah. here. One would really need to think about the uh, way that the technical infrastructure looks uh, within the company and also plan uh, to choose their technology based on what the end goal is. And that would mean that uh, you shouldn't create uh, the so-called islands of functionality along your way. So creating like small solutions that uh, solve really concrete problems and then struggling to join them all together in order to actually fulfill your end goal. Um, That is a very, very important thing to think about. But... uh, I'm touched on that topic before, but let's double down. I think it's important. Um, The new study by Bain predicts that the demand for wealth management services would double over the next eight years, reaching more than 500 billion by 2030. Uh, And uh, what is really going to happen in the uh, industry is a very ongoing process, I believe. But um, the new generation is coming up uh, and the millennials are very likely to uh, soon inherit the wealth from the boomers. uh, And they will come in to the industry with new priorities and preferences. So uh, do you see that the industry is preparing for that? Yeah, definitely. So um, if wealth managers hope to generate outsized growth in the future, they need to create a more uh, approachable value proposition for younger investors, don't they? So this segment has fewer liquid assets uh, than older generations currently do. So wealth management firms will need to reach them at critical moments through a scalable high tech and high tech, high touch model. Um, digitally powered and uh, with advisors who cover a greater number of clients. So from researching other industries, particularly the luxury goods industry, hybrid channels increase product accessibility and awareness for next generation customer segments and help them move the industry into the mass market, leading to a forecasted tenfold tenfold increase in the customer base between 85 and Uh, 2025. And this sort of leads on to um, our next topic of low code or no code, as some businesses want to perhaps move quickly in creating digital solutions. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, that is a very interesting topic to discuss because in part uh, we feel a slightly bit um, skeptical about low code, no code uh, here at Kidbrook. But before I dive in uh, why, uh, I think it makes sense to clarify for our audience, uh, for those who don't know what it is. Um, uh, Low-code, no-code software is the software with a graphic inf- interface allowing uh, users to create apps without coding, technically. So, of course, it has some um, uh, advantages, and the, mo- the most important one is uh, uh, about allowing the customers to customize products and pro and and processes without the developers, uh, citing that the demand for the developers within the industry is uh, too much. <laughs> so um, you are sort of granting the business uh, side of your business an opportunity to you know uh, tweak and turn uh, the solutions that you are using. Yeah, however, sorry, uh, there are a couple of um, downsides uh, in these kind of uh, uh, solutions as well. Um, The most important being that um, it's very hard to create unique uh, experiences if you are building from very set um, building blocks. And uh, the second is that people usually have uh, tend to have less training in these sort of solutions um, that are already are composed building blocks compared to the solutions that are more like a language, uh, a programming language, right? So you are more likely to find uh, some uh, developers uh, specialized in a programming language than somebody who would know how to use another tool that is created by another new company. Um, So... Ultimately, it doesn't take away the need for the developers in larger projects. Yeah, of course, there are a few benefits. Um, Definitely, uh, using low-code, no-code software could uh, help uh, the customers to move from the PDFs and the static forms uh, onto the wealth portals that could be much more interactive uh, and much more engaging for uh, the end customer to use. Moreover, you can also reduce the manual labor and, uh, um, you know, weight the alternative costs of doing that. However, I wouldn't be too excited about uh, this particular trend because in part of the islands of functionality that I talked about previously. Uh, if you are building your solutions uh, in blocks that are very hard to edit, um, then you are creating this problem further on as you go. Yeah, so then it seems that while it might be tempting to, to jump straight in and, and do this, they need to really, firms need to know what they want to go in, um, what they want to do with a vision and a plan, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I mean, I think we've said no-code solutions are not always designed to scale to meet enterprise needs. So it's difficult enough to live with these data silos uh, with legacy on-premise software. So we need to make sure that our businesses don't create even more silos. 
Um, it seems, though, that demand for applications is growing five times faster than IT departments can deliver. So this um, need for business agility requires IT leaders to take a step back and consider where uh, low or no code solutions can actually reduce the burden and deliver value to the business. So definitely one to watch. Um, so lastly, let's end with... Um, digital-only banks, which over the last few years have, have seen a boom, yeah? Yeah, it's changing now, but <laughs> they have yeah. uh, they have been seeing a lot of publicity and they were believed to change the game in the retail banking world. And for sure, they are more agile than their large high, high street banking counterparts in adapting to changing customer preferences. But we need to really see how it's going to play out uh, for them in the current crisis, because many of players like that are facing quite serious uh, scrutiny from um, their um, uh, venture capitalists. Um, so their values are going down dramatically. But still, I believe that there are a lot of things that um, the traditional banks could learn from uh, these players um, to improve their digital capabilities. For sure, they should... Uh, try to learn to collaborate and partner with uh, other organizations such as fintechs uh, that actually do provide uh, some of the capabilities that the uh, banks uh, themselves don't necessarily have. So there was this mindset that uh, in order to truly own the experience, you need to build it on your own completely, which seems to be uh, going to the past a little bit. You need to really pick and choose where you are really good at um, and uh, just uh, make sure to invite collaborations where you feel like you can benefit from them. And of course, you need to think about um, flexibility, data management, and the granularity of your models if you want to build for future. And uh, you also need to think about the speed of these models and be extremely um, uh, clever with how you would manage uh, the data that goes within your um uh, services, because of course we want a lot of data to go into them to make them truly personalized. But at the same time, you need to be really smart with the processing of it in order not to uh, make your customer wait uh, for the next screen to load. Yeah. Definitely. Um, it's a highly competitive market, isn't it? But this isn't necessarily a bad thing for traditional banks. It's making them review their offerings and work out how to modernise and improve them for the present day. Um, banks know they have to up their game to reach an ever-growing and ever-changing consumer, which in turn is changing their internal structures for the better. Um, but it's it's not hard to see that times are particularly hard for everyone right now, aren't they? It's being said that fintech is, is bleak, which is quite harsh, I think. Um, and I think spooked by a number of issues, including rising interest rates and the ongoing effects of the war, um, investors, investors have had to tighten their purse strings. So as a result, fintech funding has collapsed. So there was a report from the annual um, Cybers conference highlighting that the average deal has fallen from 32 million in 21 to 20 million 
dollars in 22 which is is quite big isn't it it's massive so between yeah so between um july and september a mere six firms graduated to unicorn status achieving a valuation of 1 billion or more compared with 48 in the same period last year um, and it seems that fintechs have sacked 7,300 staff since April. And I know, and you probably have as well, that we've seen in the news the past few days more fintechs reducing their headcount. So it's going to be a tough couple of years, but on a more positive note, we can we are now seeing a resetting of fintech. So those providing essential services to digitising firms should keep attracting venture capital funds. So first, there's the companies that reduce inefficiencies. Um, and then the firms that create new lines for their clients, and then also the group known as financial plumbers or firms providing data or dabbling in crypto to those that help banks comply with sanctions. Yeah, for sure. So we really do see the ecosystems forming, uh, especially in uh, wealth management as well. So uh, I would say that over the course of the last few years, we started to kind of uh, determine for ourselves who our partners are. And whenever different kind of customers come to us, we would know who uh, to team up with to make sure that we help them um, the best way. But yeah, this all does seem to be a really exciting time to be living in and gives us a lot of things to think about. So let's conclude here. And thanks everyone for listening in. Remember, we will add all the links relating to what we discussed today in the podcast notes. Stay tuned for further content in the wealth space by subscribing to our Spotify and Apple podcast channels, as well as our social media channels and make sure to check out our website see you in a few weeks yep see you everybody bye 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 bye